morning, everyone, and a very warm welcome to morning worship at Hillhead, wherever we are this morning. Our service will be led by Katrina, but we'll also hear the voices of Bethany and Tom, Joan and Lena, and our musicians this morning are Paul and Leo. In a moment, Nikan and Nikiar will be lighting our candle. Please just note that as the St Mungo's Festival service has been postponed, there will be no evening service today. So uh, that's a change from what was in the key, no evening service this week, but back to normal 7pm next Sunday. You may have noticed uh, also in the January key that Katrina is holding a series of discussion groups for anyone who might be interested in exploring either baptism or covenanted membership of our church. The group will likely meet for around six weeks and that's most li likely at the moment to be via Zoom, but we'll see how things progress. If you would like to join this group, and it is a, a purely exploratory group, you would not be committing yourselves to either baptism or membership at this point, but if you'd like to be part of those discussions, could you please let Katrina know by the end of this month as the group would like to start meeting early next month. And once we know who's involved, uh, the group itself can decide on dates and times for those meetings. So if you're interested at all, just drop an email or give a call to Katrina by the end of January. In family news, could we ask for your prayers for Lena and her family? She had a message from her mum this morning to say that her dad has taken uh, poorly again and it's very difficult uh, not really being able to see him and touch him uh, being so far away so please remember Lena and her family. And now Nikan and Nikiar we hand over to you to light our candle. As we gather for worship let us join together to become the body of Christ. Christ is the light that lights our way. May we glimpse Christ's light this day.
And as we gather, let's come to God in prayer. Let us pray. God beyond description, beyond names, beyond comprehension, we gather in the name of Jesus, one among us, one with us, companion, sibling and friend. God who welcomes, accepts and, and includes us with all our faults and failings. We open ourselves to you, knowing that you see in us all we could be and by your grace may yet become. God who restores and renews, refreshes and recreates us, we pray that in this time of worship, we may find the energy, inspiration and encouragement we need for the days ahead. God who sends us to live out the good news in the ordinary everyday rhythms of life, we pray that you will travel with us every step of the way. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom the power and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.
a joy to hear of the days when we were all together and we had little people joining in very loudly. Those days will come again. The beginning of the gospel according to Luke. Since many have undertaken to set down an orderly account of the events that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed on to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, I too decided, after investigating everything carefully from the very first, to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the truth concerning the things about which you have been instructed. Over the next few weeks, we're going to spend some time exploring themes and ideas that may be discerned from a reasonably careful reading of the gospel attributed to Luke. I should make it very clear that this is not an academic exercise, although it will be underpinned by reference to a range of commentaries and even a few articles. Our aim is not to establish who the author was, nor to deconstruct or demythologize anything that's written. Rather, our aim is to discover even the tiniest new insight into this, the longest of the four Gospels, and the first of two books, which taken together account for roughly 27% of the New Testament, quite a bit more than the 24% comprised of letters written by the Apostle Paul. In fact, Luke, or the person we know as Luke, is the single biggest contributor to the New Testament as we know it. And whilst we can't prove that it was written by somebody called Luke, nor can we prove that it wasn't, it is traditionally accepted that the author is a man of that name who was most probably a Gentile convert to Christianity and a disciple of the Apostle Paul. In Paul's letter to the church at Colossae, mention is made of the beloved physician Luke, who is described as a travelling companion and a co-worker. And it's this that leads us to believe that Luke was a doctor, a healer of the Hippocratic school, whose aim was to save life. The oft-cited medical maxim, first do no harm, has its origins in this school of thought. The essence of the Hippocratic Oath, which is explicitly faith-based and person-centred, as well as an ethical code, is worth keeping in mind as we read this account of Jesus' life. Scholars note that the Greek of this gospel is skillful and nuanced and uses the word sozo, which can be translated both as salvation and healing, and may in fact be a deliberate wordplay used by a physician whose writing includes many examples of people who were not only cured from an illness or infirmity, but made whole as human beings. Salvation in this gospel is more than just the fate of the immortal soul. A significant theme in Luke's gospel is its universalism, 
Now, even using that word can cause theologians and Christians alike to become twitchy and uncomfortable. Beginning with his account of John the Baptist citing Isaiah, the whole human race will see God's salvation. Luke, surely influenced by his own experience, expresses a theology that all can be saved, if not explicitly at least, one that all will be saved. Certainly there is no hint of what we might know as Calvinism in this gospel. Rather, the good news reaches across all humanly defined categories, whether that's geography, race, gender, class, politics or physicality. But this is not just a vague universality. It's rooted in the particularity of the stories he tells about Romans, about Samaritans, widows, tax collectors, and all sorts of people with physical and mental illnesses. Sometimes Luke is referred to as a historian because of the detailed references to Roman and Jewish rulers at the start of the story. However, his credentials as such are sometimes disputed or denied, either because the derived chronology does not fit with later accounts, or because he includes as fact supernatural events. Now, I don't want to get into a long and complicated discussion about historical method, especially post-Enlightenment. But it's fair to say that those who criticise it based on scientific method actually often fail to appreciate that for most of history, as in time going past, historical writing was accepted as being more akin to poetry, a creative retelling concerned with making meaning rather than purely a factual account of what took place. History as storytelling or even poiesis and awareness of the presuppositions and author biases are factors that have been rediscovered and recovered in more recent times. Perhaps if we think of some of the docudramas we see on television in our own time, these are more similar to the kind of accounts we discover in the Gospels and in other ancient histories. So if we can never actually answer the question, who was Dr. Luke, the nominal author of the gospel, what can we actually deduce about him? Well, I came across a, a, something in a 1963 Pelican commentary on Luke, kind of aimed at um, interested lay people. It's not an academic commentary and it's not a, a preaching commentary. It's a commentary for those who are interested. And I think what he says he, in his commentary is helpful. This is what it says about Luke. He had something of the poet in his makeup and an artist's ability to depict in vivid pen portraits the men and women who inhabit his pages. He delighted in marvels and was a little inclined to emphasise the miraculous element in his story. He was more interested in people than in ideas. He had a lively social conscience and an inexhaustible sympathy for other people's troubles. 
So a man of diverse interests who enjoyed ideas but wasn't defined by them. He had a generous and inclusive understanding of the gospel. Do you know, I can't help feeling he'd have felt quite at home at Hillhead Baptist Church. So enough of an introduction. Let's listen to what he has to say about the start of Jesus' ministry. A reading from Luke chapter 4, verses 14 to 21. Jesus, filled with the power of the Spirit, returned to Galilee, and a report about him spread through all the surrounding country. He began to teach in their synagogues and was praised by everyone. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. Amen. began thinking about this sermon series right back in November at the same time as I was working on our Advent evening reflection. So it may be not such a surprise that the first theme that emerged to me as I was thinking about this gospel was the place of poetry and prophecy within it, particularly at the beginning. As part of his systematic approach to setting out his story, Right at the start, Luke introduces us to a number of characters who each either recall prophetic utterances from the Hebrew scriptures or speak or sing their own poems and songs that will go on to become part of this gospel and hence part of the New Testament. Within the first chapter, four chapters, Mary, Zechariah, Simeon, John, and even Jesus himself have words recorded, at least in recent English language translations, in either a poetic or lyrical form. And I think in doing so, these, are, these characters are a part of an ensure, enduring tradition of the ancient prophets and seers, 
in, in our own day, perhaps the mackers and bards, the poets and songwriters who proclaim sometimes as if, as if with divine authority, words that carry important truths and challenges to those who hear them. So I was kind of interested to go and, and see what is there, is there a, a connection between poetry and prophecy and, and have clever people looked at it. And I soon discovered there is a very extensive academic body of literature on precisely that topic. And if I'd had the time and if it would have been relevant, it would have been great fun for me anyway to go off and explore it. But one useful idea that did emerge from the reading I undertook about the poetic form in this context is that it is engaging and it's memorable. Many of you, I'm sure, at school will have either learnt that Richard of York gave battle in vain, at least if your first language is English, as a way of remembering the colours of the rainbow. And some who are a bit younger than me will have learned my really easy method just speeds up naming planets. Poor old Pluto got knocked off the end. We make up mnemonics and rhymes to help us to remember things. And I think that's part of what it is about these ancient writings, is they're memorable, easy to, to recall and easy to share. And now I hesitate again to go too far into the area of literary theory, which I, I find absolutely fascinating, though I am very much an amateur. But the language of the way that poetry is analysed talks about verse or metre or feet. And this is language that is very much derived from the world of dance. As you sing the words, you may begin to tap your feet or to sway. You may even dance. Um, if you were to look through our hymn book, it's fascinating how many hymns are set to traditional melodies that were once danced to. So you outwardly express the rhythms and the beats in action. This means that the prophet and indeed the hearer are not passively transmitting words, rather it is an enacted method. We could even say maybe that the words are living and active. Well, if they have their origin in Jesus, who is the living, active word of God, that shouldn't really surprise us, should it? So I want to suggest, and I haven't explored this in any academic sense, but I want to suggest the possibility that Luke's gospel intentionally opens with these prophetic poems of Mary, Zechariah and Simeon precisely because they are easy to remember and they stir the hearer or the reader to action. I do wonder if perhaps these have become part of the, the shared memory of those who had known Jesus, who had known Mary, who had known Zechariah. Perhaps they sang them, perhaps they recalled them, perhaps they were part of their personal liturgy or, or hymn book. But might it also be that, Jesus, sorry, that Luke alone amongst the gospel writers choose to begin his account with the prophecy for this same reason? And he has Jesus 
telling a prophecy. So we've had the prophecies in Mary and Zechariah and, and in Simeon. And now we have Jesus quoting the prophet Isaiah. And here is something that people will have known all their lives if they have grown up in a Jewish church, Jewish synagogue, Jewish faith. And this is going to determine the direction the story goes. As the reader or the hearer of Luke's story travels with Jesus amongst those who are poor or marginalized or rejected, they will find stirrings of those familiar words in Isaiah's prophecy and the songs of the ordinary people in their own day. As I've reflected afresh on who we think Luke might have been and how he's chosen to structure his account, I do find myself drawn again to those songs and poems that he's chosen to include as he sets the scene for his account of the good news of Jesus, which is for all people everywhere, which is expressed in compassion and kindness and welcome for those who are powerless and marginalised and which at the same time is challenging and disturbing to those who are respected and educated and powerful and probably religious and comfortable. In the coming weeks, as we explore some of the themes in the gospel, it would be good if we can keep in mind these songs and poems that inspired Luke to shape the way he told his story. Last week, we heard the Magnificats and the Benedictus and the Nunc Dimittis, these three great poems, songs that are in the beginning of Luke's gospel. They've inspired countless composers and hymn writers to create songs and tunes to express those truths. And so it seemed to me appropriate that we sing the words that Jesus spoke in that Nazareth synagogue in a contemporary version this morning, making them our own. God's spirit is in my heart.
so as those who have been called to participate in that kingdom, to live in it, we now turn to our prayers. And we will use as a refrain of sorts, although you don't have to sing, you can just listen, uh, a song. I suspect it might be new to at least some of you. So I'll sing a, a verse at the start, and then one in the middle, and one to end. Nothing is lost on the breath of God. Nothing is lost forever. God's breath is love, and that love will remain, holding the world forever. No feather to light, no hair to find, no flower to breathe in its glory, no drop in the ocean, no dust in the air, but is counted and told in God's story. So with this reminder that nothing is lost on the breath of God, we come to you, our loving God, with, with our own personal cries, first of all. As it's been already shared in our church family this morning, I'm anxious and wanting to pray for my own dad and mom and all those who care and are upset about uh, the news and want to pray your loving touch on my own dad's life and his body. Each of us will have our own cries of our hearts and we bring them, bring them before you. We think of our loved ones in our own church family. We continue to pray for Elid and John. We think also of Graham settling back after Christmas time in Orkney. And in this coming week, we especially want to envelop our prayers around Liz and Douglas, Anne and Brian, Paul and Mary, Leslie and Alistair, Grace and Will, Nancy, Lizzie and Petri, Ian, Elizabeth and Joanna. Our loving God, would you be especially with these friends this coming week in all that they will be called to do, in all they will enjoy, in all their challenges. Would your grace and your love guide them in it all. We also want to pray for our wider church family the Baptist Union of Scotland, 
pray for Marilee Anderson, who is a chaplain at Aberdeen University. And we pray for three sister churches in Alexandria, in Aloha, and in Alness. Loving God, would you be with them? And would you lead them into mission that is yours? Would you help them to recognize where your kingdom is in breaking? Would you keep showing them how they and we can join in? Together with the BMS, the Baptist Missionary Society, we pray for the country of Peru this coming week. For the BMS workers there and for Peruvian Evangelical Baptist Convention. It will be holding, it hopes, its annual, annual assembly this month. And we think of all those who have lost their lives uh, in the coronavirus pandemic, Peru was hit hard. And we're asked to pray especially for families of pastors who passed away in these last couple of years. We're asked to pray for ongoing restoration and reinvigoration for the convention and for ministries with which BMS World Mission cooperates. And as we pray for Peru, our God, we think of also so many other places in the world, including places which do not know how or even cannot pray for themselves. And so we pray for them. Perhaps a particular situation of injustice, or violence, or just the withering of life is coming to our minds now, something we've read about, something we've seen on the news, something we've heard about. All of this we bring to you, our God. Nothing is lost to the eyes of God, nothing is lost forever. God sees with love and that love will remain, holding the world forever. No journey too far, no distance too great, no valley of darkness too blinding, no creature too humble, no child too small for God to be seeking and finding. And we also pray for all that which is good and hopeful and life-giving. We remember the words with which Jesus started his ministry about good news being brought to the poor, about the prisoners who are being set free. 
blind people being able to see, downtrodden being set free. And so again, perhaps there was something that we've heard or read or even witnessed ourselves that we want to keep praying for as an inbreaking of God's kingdom, as, as perhaps a little shoot that we want to take note and pray God's blessing. In a newsletter called Positive News, yesterday I was reading the reports of the world's first rewilding centre located in the heart of the highlands of Scotland in Dundrega, which should open within a year to anybody who would like to visit. And so, besides other things, I would like to include that in our prayers. More than 4,000 animal and plant species, including rarities that previously were thought to be extinct here in Scotland. We pray for all the people who work there and those who will be able to enjoy this remarkable example of God's created beauty. So our loving God, help us to notice and see and keep praying for the good things that come from you, that are part of the kingdom that you're bringing. Help us not to simply do it now, but in the days to come. Keep training our eyes to see the signs of your kingdom around us and in this world. Nothing is lost to the heart of God. Nothing is lost forever. God's heart is love and that love will remain holding the world forever. No impulse of love, no office of care, no moment of life in its fullness, no beginning too late, no ending too soon, but is gathered and known in God's goodness. Amen.
May the God who is impatient with all that denies fullness of life and who is eternally patient with us in our endeavours to live the good news, bless us with songs of hope and rhythms of joy as we step into the week ahead. Amen.